First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This is the word of the Lord. When I heard these words as a boy, I urge you then, let there be prayers for everyone. I didn't know very many people. My world was... Panola County, Texas. I felt I knew just about everybody in Panola County because the school district was consolidated into Carthage, which meant that some of the students with whom I went to school those 12 years rode school buses 20 miles every morning, 20 miles home in the afternoon. I rode only six miles in, six miles out every day myself. But after Gail and I were married and had done all of our college and graduate work and had learned to budget our monies by percent, and the books we were reading were telling us what percent one should figure on for vacation. There came a time in 1982 when we had enough in that fund to make our first trip to Europe. Trey, Jason, Gail and I went to a travel agency here in Tulsa. We didn't know what we were doing. A woman said, well, here's some catalogs. Pick out the places you want to go and how much you want to spend. And so we looked at it. We bought one of those tours, seven countries in 14 days, on a bus. Um, You don't see much that way, but you see a lot of places in a hurry. We learned to read brochures very carefully. I remember that very first year. It said, today we arrive in Rome, the city of the Vatican and the Colosseum. Well, when we arrived, we were parked at a hotel 17 miles from downtown. If you wanted to see the Colosseum and the Vatican, well, that was an extra $30 apiece in 1982. But we learned we've now been in 41 countries of the world, Gail and I. Our world is a lot bigger than it used to be. What's really amazed me all of these years is when we get back to the hotel at night and turn on the television... The things we hear on our 10 o'clock news are very similar to what you hear in most of those countries as well. They're afraid their children are not doing well. They're afraid their schools are not keeping up. They're afraid their taxes are only going to go higher and they're going to have less and less disposable income. They're afraid they cannot afford medical care when they need it. They're afraid they cannot afford their older years of life, that they'll be forced into some kinds of really difficult decisions about how the end of life will come to them. They're worried about their enemies. Are they safe? Are they well protected? Are they spending enough money on defense? Can they afford to do more? How can they make better friends? And so on. Every country has brought others into their country to do the kind of work they don't want to do, and now that minority is getting bigger and bigger and sometimes hostile to the government they have and to the way of life the people there have enjoyed. It's difficult all over the world, hurt and pain, difficulties of similar kinds. Most everybody we've ever met wants peace for their children. They want good schools. They want meaningful jobs. They want enough money that they can look after themselves, that they can have a nice home, that they can eat three meals a day. They can go and see things and places. Here's this word. I urge you, first of all, pray for everyone. Pray for everyone. Because 
So let's go to those points first, and then we'll come back to the praying for everyone. Number one, there is one God. There is one God. Dr. Joette Bassler, in her commentary on this passage, says, It's a basic tenet of Judaism, of course, that you must have only one God. When Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment in all of Judaism? He began with Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, which translates the name given to Moses at the burning bush, the Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am. Hear, O Israel, the I am who I am, your Elohim, the oldest word they had for God. You must have no other God but Him. You must love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just one God. When Gail and I travel, we like to see lots of different places, do different things, and now that we've had the opportunity to be in a number of places more than once, uh, we're looking a little harder for things we haven't seen before. Eighteen months ago, we were in London again, and Gail had decided that one of the places she wanted to go and see was the home of John Keats. So we found on a city map where John Keats had lived 200 years ago. Uh, we caught the underground and got out as close to that address as we could, and then we started walking. His home was 17 miles or so from downtown London. It was a pretty good subway ride. And then we started walking through the neighborhood, a neighborhood 200 years old or more. And finally we came to a very modest home, two-story, but not, not extravagant by any means. We paid the ticket, got inside, we even got into the backyard of the home where you could see the plants that were growing, see butterflies flying around. You could start remembering some of the poetry of John Keats. There's a new movie now about John's time there in London, about the young woman who also lived in the house. Her name was Franny Braun, Fanny Braun. John really fell for her. But you know this story is not going to end well if you remember what happened to John Keats. Um, Jane Campion, who made The Piano and any number of other award-winning movies, has made this one. She's written it. She's directed it. She's produced it. It's called Bright Star. Bright Star from one of the poems that John Keats wrote to Fanny Braun. John Keats' mother died of consumption, tuberculosis. He and his brother helped nurse her in those last stages of her life. John's older brother contracted consumption and had no one to look after him but John. John looked after his brother day and night until he died. And then one night, John woke up in the middle of the night coughing with a deep and productive cough, and he knew he had tuberculosis. He was in his early 20s. Fanny Braun was in her late teens. There was a friend named Charles Brown, and Charles Brown was always trying to get Keats to focus on the writing, focus on the writing. If you're so sick, then you have to, have to work more quickly, work more quickly. And uh, John's getting more and more interested in Fanny Braun. Winter comes again, cold, damp in London, making breathing even more difficult. And so this friend Charles Brown convinces him that they should take a ship around Gibraltar into the Mediterranean over to Italy where it's warmer and much drier that he can breathe better. So they take that ship and within a few months John Keats died. He was only 25. 25 years old. But in this new movie, two lines from John Keats are important, I think, for what I want to say today. 
First of all, he says to Charles Brown about Fanny Braun, I believe there is a holiness in the affections of the human heart. And on another occasion, he says to Charles Brown about Fanny, I believe she is concentrating all of my senses. To redeem that metaphor, this is what Jesus was saying, this is what the Torah had said long before about God. If you really understand how much you are loved by God and decide to love God in return, you will love Him with all your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Number two, there is one mediator. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this text, to help you be sure that you understand what this author of 1 Timothy is trying to say, says there is one priest mediator, because that was the role of the priest, remember, to go into the Holy of Holies and to take the prayers of the people to God and then bring God's response back out to the people to go from one to the other. Have you been through mediation ever? One of the persons who's in our Jewish Christian Dialogue group, Judge Peterson, a retired judge, was ranking district judge here in Tulsa County when he retired, uh, became mediator last year, trying to negotiate between the city and the county and so on, with some of the differences between the two. And I asked him about what a job that was. You know, in real mediation, you put one group in one room and one in another group, and the mediator goes back and forth. I was involved in mediation one time a dozen years ago, and we were told, bring a book or bring crossword puzzles or something, because you're going to spend half the day uh, just sitting and waiting for the mediator to get back. The mediator comes into the room where you are and listens very carefully to what you think is right, and then goes to the other room and listens to that person or that group talk about what they think is right. Now, I was negotiating on behalf of Boston Avenue Church, and it went on into the night. A lot of it waiting and waiting for the mediator to get back. For us, this mediator is the only time God came in flesh and blood. We Christians believe that God was in Mary's child, Jesus, in a way he never had been before in any other human being and never would be again except in that same one, Jesus Christ, the mediator. I was reading recently that Amadeus is being presented this summer at the Repertory Theater in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was remembering when Gail and I and our son saw Amadeus on Broadway. Frank Langella was playing the role of Salieri. A few years later, Gail and I saw Amadeus presented right here in Tulsa. And the head of the drama department for Tulsa Community College at that time played Salieri. And frankly, we thought he did an even better job than Frank Langella had done. He really was wonderful. Uh, we were sitting so close to the stage here. We didn't have that good of tickets in New York. And we were really close to the stage and we could get every word, every word he was saying. Remember that Salieri was a real person, a court musician, who was responsible for writing, composing something new every time anything of significance happened in the royal family. Uh, if the royal family had a new baby, write something new. If the baby was baptized, write something new. If there was a wedding, write something new. If there was a death, as in 
a requiem, like Gabriel Faure's requiem. Somebody dies, write and compose something new. And Salieri, who was very well known himself, I listen to classical music in my office all the time, every day, and I hear every once in a while they'll say, that piece was from Salieri. He was a capable Italian composer himself. But Mozart, ah, gee, it just seemed to come so easily to him. Gail and I were in Mozart's home again in May. The last time we'd been in Salzburg, they were painting, redoing, redecorating the home where Mozart was born. Uh, this time we got to have a really good look, and they've added to almost all the museums of the world now. They have the little disc you can hang around your neck, and you can dial up what parts you want to hear. So it means a lot more to go through Mozart's home where he was born, and then later where he lived as a young adult, and, and hear Mozart being played into your ears while you walk from exhibit to exhibit and see. Remember what Salieri said about him. I think I have heard the voice of God, and it's coming through the voice of an obscene child. <laughs> it just came so easily to Mozart that the play is called Amadeus, his middle name, Amo in Latin, which is love, I love, and Deus, which is God. The special love of God visited in this child, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. The title of the review of this presentation in St. Louis was Some More Equal Than Others. But the part about the mediator is we all are treated the same. We all are treated the same. God is willing to reveal how far his love would go for each one of us, for all of us, all the same. He loves you as much as he loves any other child of his on the planet, and he doesn't love you any more than he loves any other child of his on the planet. Number three, he is a ransom. One ransom. The Greek word translated here, ransom, also has a corresponding word that we translate redeem and the noun redemption. And all three of these words come from a Greek word that relates directly to the slave trade. Slavery was rampant in all of the ancient world and certainly was in the Roman Empire. Every people who were defeated and therefore conquered by the Romans were enslaved. Now, they were rounded up and driven back by the Roman forces to Rome or some of the other major cities controlled by the Romans, and these people were sold. And this wonderful Greek word describes that event where a slave is being auctioned off and people bid and bid, and finally the auctioneer declares sold, and the person buying walks up and with a key unlocks the chains and manacles from the slave and lets him or her walk away free. That's what this word is in Greek. For that rare occurrence when somebody bought a slave and let him or her walk away free. What this author is saying is God has done that for you in Christ Jesus. Okay? God has redeemed you redeemed you. Sin cannot conquer you or your behavior unless you let it. Death cannot be the final word for you unless you choose to reject life. 
life everlasting that God offers to you as a gift. When I was taking music appreciation back in college, I was hearing the first real opera I had ever heard. Um, I might have heard little snippets on a radio from time to time, but seriously, at Centenary College, I started hearing operas. And Gail and I have been to a number of operas here in Tulsa. We have a very good opera company here. You know that there are relatively few operas that are performed on a regular basis. And so even in our great opera company here, um, every few years, you know, operas get repeated. It's rare that a new opera is composed these days. But there was one back in 1994 called Emmeline. It was first staged in Santa Fe, New Mexico, of all places, but it was so highly received uh, that it was filmed by the public broadcasting system, and OETA carried it as well. It's called Emmeline. Emmeline. It's based on a story from 1841. Tragic story. Most operas are based on tragic stories, as you know. Um, finally, nearly everybody dies, and they're you know end up in poverty, and they're mistreated, and all. Most every opera, sad, sad, sad. The human situation. Emmeline also. Emmeline, 14 years old. Younger sister dies. Younger sister's only two. 1841. Lots of babies died in the birth process, and if not, they died in the first four or five years of their lives. Emmeline's little sister died. Whole family's grieving. Family's poor, poor, living up in New England. And so Emmeline is sent to work in a factory when she's 14. Guess what? There's a factory supervisor who loves little girls, loves little girls, and forces himself upon Emmeline. She conceives, bears a child before she's 15 years old. The baby is whisked away from her in the middle of the night. She thinks it was a little girl. And she spends years and years, even though she has to go to work every day, looking for this baby she birthed. Does not find this little girl she's looking for. When she's 34, she falls in love with a young man who's 20, they get married, and then someone tells her that her husband is her son. Sad, no, really sad story, Emmeline. The music is powerfully done, and at the end, almost everybody has a broken heart. But one of the reasons opera and other musical uh, genre carry these themes is that there is much hurt and pain in the world. There is much hurt and pain and sin. And strong people take advantage of weaker people. And rich people so often do take advantage of poor people. The Bible says God wants to redeem all of God's children from sin and death. All of them. Redeem them all. Brings us to number four. Back to the beginning. First then, this author says, first then I urge you to pray for everyone because God wants to save them all. All of them. English and French and Germans, Swedes. All those in Asia, all those in Africa. Pick a place, all children of God. God wants to save them all. Last Thursday, I was at a luncheon for the downtown clergy. There were 13 of us present. And uh, I sat down next to my friend, Rabbi Charles Sherman. And after we'd had the prayer and started to eat, um, I said, now, Charles, I haven't asked you this in advance, and you don't have to respond if you don't want to. But... Uh, we Gentile Christians have some idea about the history of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but 
what really will happen at Temple Israel this Saturday, yesterday, and what will happen at Yom Kippur uh, a week from Monday, ten days later? What happens at Temple Israel on those two days? And he said, sure, I'd be glad to talk about that. And he said, first of all, of course, all of you know that crowd-wise, this is our Christmas and Easter all rolled up into two days. Uh, this is when we have the biggest crowds of the year. Our normal crowds we have in a smaller sanctuary, but when we come to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we have folding uh, big segments of the wall, and all of these are opened up, and we put in every chair for every body we can possibly hold. And people come back from four or five states away, he said, to be with children or with parents or with grandparents. He said it's all about family. It's about finitude. I see it in people's faces that they realize another year has rushed by so quickly and grandmother is looking so old and feeble and one day I will look like her if I live long enough and death will come to me too. But it's also about forgiveness. It's about repentance. Remember the Hebrew word for repentance, I'm telling you, means turn, turn. Not only being sorry, but asking God to turn us and send us in right directions. To turn us and send us in right directions. And so he said they come in great numbers. Rosh Hashanah and then ten days later at Yom Kippur. One of our more conservative brothers said, but what if they don't come? And what if they don't repent? Is there a judgment for them? And the rabbi said, yes, self-imposed. What if they don't come on Yom Kippur and repent and receive forgiveness? And he said, then maybe the day after, or maybe the day after that, the door to forgiveness never closes. Amen.